with him I am well pleased. You may be seated. Two things uh, before uh, I get started in tonight's message. Uh, Lost and found, white bow. I'm going to presume this belongs to a little girl. And if, uh, if you recognize this, it was found in the, uh, the family room tonight. And if you recognize it, uh, it's going to be down here. I'm going to hand it to Jeff real quick. He's going to put it down here on the front pew. And you can come after we're done tonight and pick that up. You can claim it. And then secondly, um, uh, I usually like to stick around for a little, uh, little while and, and talk and greet with folk. But uh, my best friend from high school who lives in Annapolis, Maryland, is, is flying in tonight at 7 o'clock and should be uh, hitting the ground about 7. And by the time he gets his luggage and everything, uh, about 7.15 or so. And we are meeting him. Uh, Ellen and Jordan and I are going to meet him for dinner. So as soon as, as we say sort of the final amen tonight, I'm going to skedaddle. And um, sorry, we, we, we can't visit. That's one of my favorite things to do on a Sunday night is to visit and spend time uh, catching up and, and talking. But we are going to, uh, to another appointment tonight, and uh, uh, we will we'll see you Tuesday night at the Praise and Pie. Uh, tonight we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 3 and some of the things that John has to say about the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. But before we jump into this message, let's uh, ask God to bless us. Father, we're grateful that you've given us this time tonight to come together and to find ourselves in this place, this place of love, this place of fellowship, this place of worship, and this place of friendship and place of family. We are grateful, Father, that you have, through your Spirit, through your Word, through the years, been able to forge us into a unified family that represents not only the relationship, Father, that that we share with you, but it also represents the love and the unity and the fellowship and the commitment to discipleship and the, the desire to be the community of your Son, Jesus, the, the bride of Christ in this community in such a way that people get an idea, an understanding, uh, a glimpse of what the Gospel is all about and the way that we live with one another and the way that we, we find ourselves in overflowing, overwhelming gratitude for your grace. And as we study tonight, Father, it's our prayer, as we always pray, that you will give us eyes that see and ears that hear. We pray that, that, uh, that we listen intently to what John the Baptist has to say about Jesus of Nazareth. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Between the, third, uh, the second and the third chapters of Matthew, what we find is, is Matthew sort of fast-forwarding about 30 years in the life of Jesus. And Matthew himself does not mention anything in those intervening years between Jesus' birth and the beginning of his ministry once John the Baptist is put in jail. And I think that one of the reasons for that is that for, for, for Matthew's purposes, this information about those intervening years or those, uh, those, those years between the birth and the ministry beginning are not crucial information for establishing a personal relationship with God. But what we do know about those years spent in Nazareth once he returned from, uh, from Egypt is that he grew up as the son of a carpenter. In fact, uh, the last time that Jesus really goes to Nazareth and reads Scripture and, uh, in the synagogue, they take umbrage and they're offended at him because, uh, because of the, the, the fact that there's no, there's no honor for a prophet in his hometown. And they're, 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 they're offended at Jesus' uh, self-identification as the Messiah. 
and they referred to him as the son of the carpenter. He grew up living in a family, and he grew up as typical Jewish boys do in that time. And then all of a sudden, we have in the third chapter, there's John the Baptist who's out in the desert, and he's not living a very normal life. He's not dressed as a typical Jewish person in the first century. He's out in the desert. He is dressed like the prophet or reminiscent of the prophet Elijah. And he's out there and he's eating locusts and he's eating honey. And he's preaching a message of preparation for the coming Messiah and the need for repentance. And all of that language that he uses about bringing the mountains low and and raising up the valleys and straightening the paths, all of that is language that, that was very common in that day for the preparations that a city would make or a village would make when the king or the emperor was coming. The emperor doesn't want to sweat going up, and he doesn't want to, to, to fall going down. So you flatten out the hills and raise up the valleys, and you straighten that path so it is the easiest, most direct route and honoring route and respectful route for the, the status of the one that is coming into that city. And that's the language that John is using. He's saying, you need to get your life straight. You need to get your life right for the Messiah to be able to come into it. And he's baptizing Jewish people for the forgiveness of their sins. And he's this extremely popular preacher at this particular time in Israel's history. And there are gigantic crowds that are going out to hear him preach and to hear him teach. It says that all the towns, all the people are going out into the wilderness to hear him preach and to preach about the coming of the Messiah. And one of the things that you see about John the Baptist is that he's not this Tony Robbins sort. He does not flatter the Pharisees and the other religious leaders when they come out into the wilderness to hear him preach and, them, and, and for them too to be baptized by John. I mean, you don't hear him saying, well, we have some Pharisees visiting with us today. We'd like to welcome them into the wilderness. We hope you enjoy our service. No, in fact, he sort of lays into them and makes sure that they understand the importance of repentance and the accepting of the Messiah, even they, the, the, uh, the Pharisees. He says to them in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, when he sees that many of the Pharisees and Sadducees were coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, you brood of vipers, who warn you to flee from the coming wrath. Now, when you think about this, you think about viper, you, you know, they're, they're not... They're not the most uh, uh, cuddly of, of the, the creatures that God has made. They're, they're not popular as pets. But when we drill down even more, more deeply into what it is theologically that he's saying, in the Jewish mind, what were serpents associated with? Evil and Satan. And basically what he's saying is that you are children of Satan. He is not giving them warm fuzzies at all. He is being very, very direct in what their spiritual state is at. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. John the Baptist was one of those preachers, as my dad used to say, who did not mince words. You understood where he was coming from. And John John had a pretty pretty good idea of who he was. And what he had come to do. When once asked by some of these religious sorts, the religious leaders, if he was the Messiah or not, he says in John chapter 1, verse 23, you know, I, I'm not the Messiah. I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. He understood exactly who he was. 
He was the one that, that, that voice that was going to prepare the way. He was that heralding voice of the Messiah that was coming, that was going to prepare the people's heart to hear the Messiah and to accept the Messiah and to receive the Messiah and to embrace Him. The message was to get ready because the Messiah is coming. He said in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. I will baptize, uh, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And this is how John described the coming Messiah. His winnowing fork is in his hands, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. In other words, the Messiah is coming, and he will change your life. The Messiah is coming, and he will change your life. And what John tells us is three things in this text. The first is the Messiah will bless you with power. That when the Messiah comes, He will bless you with power. Look again at verse, verse 11. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now when you think about it in our modern age, the idea of God coming to reside in you, of God living within a person, is a very profound idea. But it was, it was, it was an expectation. It was something that was readily thought about on a daily basis in the first century. The idea that God, the living God, would come and reside in a person was not only a profound idea, it was a very profound anticipation and expectation for those people for centuries. The prophets have been talking about it. That there is going to be a day in which it will, it will no longer be the same old, same old. It will be a day that is unlike any other day that has ever been. It will be a day in which the living God Himself will pour His Spirit into people's lives. And so in Isaiah chapter 44, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. The idea here being that, that when this Spirit comes that it's going to be like water that's hit land that is parched. It, it, it will hit land that is thirsty and, and parched for water. And then we'll just drink it up and make it the right kind of, of soil once again. He says, and following that, that metaphor of dry ground and thirsty land, he says, I'm going to pour out my Spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They were looking forward to that day in which God's Spirit would, would, would come like, like a flood, like, like a, a, a running stream of water into their inner deserts. The, the prophet Ezekiel would say in Ezekiel 36, and I will put my spirit in you. Very direct language. I will put my spirit in you. In you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. In the very next chapter, Ezekiel 37, I will put my spirit in you and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land, and you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and have, de uh, have done it, declares the Lord. And then Joel chapter 2, verse 28, very famous from Acts chapter 2. Then afterwards I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. And John is now saying that after all of these centuries where Ezekiel and Joel and Isaiah had spoken about this day that was somewhere in the future where God would pour His Spirit, He would put His Spirit inside of people's hearts. That day has now come. The day has now come in which He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now as you know, to baptize means to immerse, to, to, to plunge completely in water where everything becomes completely drenched. 
And this is what John is saying about the work of the Messiah, that every part of your life, every part of your life will come under the power of God's Spirit. That there won't be a part of your life that's business and a part of your life that's home life and a part of your life that's hobby and a part of your life that's religion and relationship with God. It's that every part of your life will be overwhelmed by this stream of God's Spirit that is being poured into your life and you will come under the power of God's Spirit and He will change you and transform you and teach you how to follow His laws. And one of the marks of the Spirit's presence in your life is that a power that was not there before has now become present. And then there's a second thing he talks about. Not only the power, but purity. The, the Messiah will bless you with purity. We go back to Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, and he says, not only will he baptize you with the Holy Spirit, but with fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, what does the statement, baptized with fire, mean? Well, on the one hand, it can mean annihilation, that you burn something up, that you just completely destroy, that it gets annihilated in the fire, which would not be very good for believers at all. But there's a flip side to that coin, which means that, yes, it is, it is, it, it is with fire and it is burned, but burn in the sense, or fire in the sense of purify, the way that metal is purified by fire. And so too our lives, and so too our faith become purified by fire. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed going hand in hand with the presence of the Spirit in our lives. And that power and that strength that comes from God is the call to purity. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 14, Paul is writing to this young fellow on the island of Crete. And he's reminding him of some truths about Christ and Christ's mission and Christ's work among His people. And he describes Jesus as one who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to do what? to purify for Himself a people that are His very own, eager to do what is good. James chapter 4 and verse 8, this is Jesus' brother writing this, this general letter to, to, to the church. It says, come near to God, and He will come near to you. Some of the translations talk about drawing near to God, and He will draw near to you. And then He says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded men. And then in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. One of the things that Jesus came to do and one of the things that Jesus came to accomplish and one of the things that God is accomplishing in His people through the Spirit is to purify for Himself a people. That is, a, a people who have complete disdain for sin being present in their life. For a, a, a people who understand what the holiness of God is all about and don't fear that holiness in the sense of wanting to run away from it, but, but fear that, that holiness in the sense of have a great esteem for it and a great reverence for it. In fact, understand the call of God that as He is holy, we too are to be holy. Leviticus chapter 19 and 1 Peter chapter 1. That we are a holy people that are purified by God's power and by, and, and by God's presence. And so the big question is, do we welcome the call to live a purified life? 
And then the last thing is that He will provide a path. This is the part of the story where Jesus comes to be baptized by John. It's given people a little trouble over the years. Even John had some trouble with it. He says, when Jesus requests baptism, He says in verse 13, I need to be baptized by you. But listen carefully to Jesus' answer in verse 15. Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. Baptism is, is, is about a lot of things. And, and it should, should never be diminished to an act that merely brings forgiveness of sin. Baptism is, and the, the metaphor that is used throughout the Bible is the washing away of sins. And, 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 and uh, Peter in Acts chapter 2 says the exact, you know, the, the exact statement of, of, of baptism and, and repentance and forgiveness of sins being linked together along with the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2.38. It should never be diminished to just merely the forgiveness of sins. Is it an act of faith? Yes. Is it about forgiveness of sins? Yes. But it is an act that not only recognizes Jesus as Savior, that's where the forgiveness of sin comes in, but also as Lord. When, when Peter ends his Pentecost sermon, which is laced with references to Jesus as Lord, he ends it with these words. Verse 36. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both what Lord and Messiah. Lord and Messiah. Messiah and Lord. In Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans, we are told, are baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. What this means is that baptism is about forgiveness, but not forgiveness alone. It's not just about forgiveness of sins, but about a life that is committed to the will and the ways of God. It is about the Lordship of Jesus as well. And when Jesus is baptized... It is an example of him committing himself to the will of God. That he is committing himself to the mission of God and to the way of God and the will of God in the world. His life is about a kingdom life. And that's why he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane at the end of his ministry, it's not about my will being done, but it's about your will being done. Even though... Everything in him wanted to evade that cross and for that cup to pass from his lips and, and to be drunk by somebody else. He prayed because of his commitment to the kingdom of God and God's will and God's way in his life. It's not my will, but your will be done. And so what he has given us is a path. An example that we follow throughout all of life. That it is about the kingdom of God blossoming and, and flourishing in our life. It is about the gospel of Jesus being made evident and manifested and demonstrated in our life. The will of God being seen in every act, being heard in every word, being, being, being felt in every experience of worship and fellowship that we have with one another. It's about a power. It's about a call to purity. And it's about a path that we walk because we belong to Jesus. The Messiah came to give us power and to give us a, a, a pure life, a purified life, and a path to live. And maybe you've never chosen that path. Maybe you've never chosen that kind of life. Never, maybe you've never thought about it in those terms. Maybe you thought about it in terms of the things that I don't get to do these, you know, once I become a Christian, as opposed to the life that I really enjoy now with some of the things that, 
that seems so enjoyable to me, at least in this in this this part, this phase of my life. You know what Jesus came to do, according to John, was to help us to understand what the holiness of God was all about, and to see it, and to understand it, and 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 to follow it all the days of our life, and to understand the blessing of that power that comes to us when the Spirit of God comes into us at baptism as a gift. You know, when, when Paul would talk about this same kind of thing, he says, you know, when you walk by the ways of the world, these are the things that are product of the world. And he talks about the meanness and the violence and the strife and the backbiting and, and, and the disorder and the, the disarray of relationships. He says, you know, but when you come into the kingdom of God and you've committed yourself to the kingdom of God, these are the kinds of things that take place. There is, there is a joy and a peace and a love and a faithfulness and a gentleness and a kindness that, that cannot come into your life except that you walk with God's Spirit. And, and, and Peter tells the church, he says, you look around and you see the dissolute lives around you. And you understand the, the, the degradation of mind and of body and of soul in, in this empire. And you see the kind of damage that it does to people. That's why God says, I'm holy and I call you to be holy as well. There in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, as he's quoting back in Leviticus chapter 19. That there is a call to holiness and, and to purity that saves your life and is beautiful to behold. And He calls us to live a certain kind of a way. There's a path to follow. We're committing ourselves not just to living a life that reflects the forgiveness of sin and the cross and the sacrifice of Jesus, but a life that recognizes that He's not just Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the, the, the Savior, but He is the Lord Jesus of Nazareth. Son of God, incarnate, God becoming flesh, who died on the cross to save us from our sins. He is our Lord, and we follow that path all the days of our life. We're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. If you'd like to give yourself to, to the Messiah, to the Lord Jesus tonight, that can be done. And these, these shepherds down here at the front, the spiritual leaders of our church, would be glad to talk to you about how that can be done. And we're going to...